open up your chest and you learn how to feel A big, bleeding heart go dump, dump, dump And a big old love, that's how you overcome Life slip, come down, now to keep it real Open up your chest and you learn how to feel A big, bleeding heart go dump, dump, dump And a big old love, that's how you overcome Tick, tick, we wishing What's up, world? You're tuned in to Glowry Podcast. I'm your host, Monk. Make sure if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review. Come on, do it. Do the right thing. Because I see how many listenings we're getting, and then I look at how many ratings and reviews we get. The math ain't adding up. So if you've been listening for a minute, like just take, literally take a minute, go smash that rating button, and then write a quick quick review. Doesn't have to be anything extensive. It just helps get the exposure up. Again, I encourage you to go check out our new YouTube channel on YouTube. It's just Glowry Podcast. We got new vids and stuff going on there, and we'll have audiograms of episodes little snippets from episodes going up there as well as some other goodies make sure you also get our email or our mailing list rather and then if you're on spotify go give us a follow there and then the music side glory on the music side get that sidewalk album that's been out for a little bit go share that with your people um, we got new singles that are getting prepped right now, so pay attention to that. Uh, today, we're getting into a little bit more the book side of things. I told you I'd be covering some books. So the book we're look, I'm going to be looking at today is The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. That's by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, uh, two researchers, two academics, Odds are, if you are listening to this podcast, you were probably recommended through like Joe Rogan or a similar podcast in height, especially Jonathan Haidt has been recommended through many of those podcasts. So you might be familiar with the work he was making the rounds promoting this book a year and a half ago or so. Um, but we're just going to go through it, read some excerpts and break those down. Um, the angle I'm coming from in this is, you know, I work in schools and have worked in school, so I've worked at every level. I've worked at the university level, though that wasn't very long. I worked at the junior college, community college level, and then I also worked, um, I also work and currently work, you know, at the high school level as well. So I kind of see how all the levels flowed flow together in my experience now the book is talking mainly about what's coming out of the universities um and how it could possibly be harming the generations that are coming up and we see that with some of the extremism that's coming up we see that with the rise of a victim mentality and all these other things they go through it but again they're trying to apply this mostly specifically to encounters and occurrences that have happened at the university level and then things they've noticed in their experience being academics in the university system they also at the end and we'll go through these they give some recommendations for schooling and parenting in general based upon the research um but that is the angle they're coming from so the initial premise though one of the things that you kind of have to get through is they look at 9-11, like parenting pre-9-11 and parenting post-9-11 and parenting post-9-11 has changed drastically because things more or less were considered generally safe on the home front. And then when 9-11 happened, it's like, okay, the enemy is here on the doorstep and this gives rise to what the term is known as helicopter parenting excuse me got a little frog in my throat so i'm gonna be lubing lubing up here with a little drink a little banana mango smoothie going down the pipe so um that's kind of the context here again it's it's one of those books too it's slightly academic it's short it's 250 pages or so so 
it gets kind of heady and a little bit academic in places, but still it was written not necessarily for an academic audience, but for a general audience. Um, and it's broken down in a way where there are nice, you know, four to five page chunks. So if it gets too heady for you, you read that four to five page chunk, put it away, come back to it later. I recommend doing it, but you can search them out too for more talks on their work. That's Jonathan Haidt, Greg Lukianoff. And of course, it's going to be linked in the show notes as well if you want to check that out. So let's get into some of the stuff that's in this book. So... Um, here they're actually quoting another study, another researcher, um, the researcher Taleb Nicholas or Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He's a Lebanese statistician. Um, but something that he said in one of his books was, um, just as, so this is getting into, um, anti-fragility. So the contention is that, Kids aren't fragile. Kids only act fragile because we're treating them like they're so fragile. The idea here is, is like kids are actually anti-fragile. Kids are actually resilient. The reason we are seeing a rise in the fragility and kids not being resiliency. That's what, right? We've been hearing all over the place with in regards to Gen Z and then to millennials. Oh, they're so soft. These millennials are so soft. These Gen Zers are so soft. So the first thing is, is we have to stop blaming. Well, we have to stop blaming the current generation, the generation that's coming up and criticizing how they are. Because the ironic thing is, is like if you're getting in at millennials and saying millennials are so soft and entitled, well, guess what? Who raised the millennials? Right? The boomers who raised the Gen Zers, the Gen Xers. So you have some stock in that as well. So if you are complaining about millennials, but you raised a generation of millennials, part of that's on you. Right? If you are upset at Gen Zers, but you helped raise a generation of Gen Zers, part of that is on you. So there's the flaw in some of that argument is we all have a part to play in this, depending on which side of it is you're you're on. But, right, you hear this argument, no, Gen Yers, millennials, they're entitled and they're fragile. Gen Zers are entitled and they're fragile. Whatever this new generation coming up is called, I don't know and I don't remember. They're fragile and entire. They need their safe spaces. So the contention here is, is kids are naturally anti-fragile. People are naturally anti-fragile. Most things in our existence are naturally anti-fragile. But if we treat things, people, whatever, like they are fragile, guess what? Especially kids. And you're the adult. You're supposed to be stewarding the environment to allow them to grow and be the people they are. So if you are stewarding environment that allows them to be fragile, you're going to create fragile human beings. The argument here is that people are naturally anti-fragile. Kids are naturally resilient and anti-fragile. It's actually better that they learn hard lessons when they're younger because the stakes and the consequences are much less catastrophic. This has been a thing that's happened with millennials, right? Millennials didn't learn these lessons early on, you know, as early teenagers or preteens or whatever, and instead went out and made the mistakes they should have been learning then, but made the mistakes when they're 25, 30, you know, and having families on the line or a lot of other things on the line made these mistakes and now have more catastrophic effects. So that's one thing, but it came from helicopter parenting and, um, living in these quote-unquote fragile and overprotective environments that we steward. So this is what Talib is commenting on, and again, Haidt and Lukianoff are quoting him here. And um, so in the book, just as spending a month in bed leads to muscle atrophy, complex systems are weakened and even killed when deprived of stressors. Much of our modern structured world has been harming us with top-down policies and contraptions, which do precisely this, an insult to the anti-fragility of systems. This is the tragedy of modernity. As with um, neurologically overprotective parents, or sorry, neurotically overprotective parents, those trying to help are often, often hurting us the most. 
The tragedy of modernity is with neurotically overprotective parents. I'm repeating this. Those trying to help us are often hurting us the most. So it's this idea here. Yes, you need a loose structure to help people, but without any type of resistance, your system, let's, let's talk about it biologically for a little bit. Your, your system biologically, right? If we work out, you hear me talking a lot about fitness, right? If I do not have a stressor or I do not have a type of resistance, right, to train my muscles and my bone density, guess what happens, right? Since I don't have resistance, I don't have a discomfort to go against, my muscles will not grow. My bones will not get stronger. My bone density will not get better, etc. It's the same thing with quote unquote fragility and anti-fragility. Systems are anything we engage in is anti-fragile naturally. But if we never engage any resistance, that thing will then become fragile. And this is the same applies with parenting. Um, something that Jocko says is if you're helping your kids, you're hurting your kids. So you want to give them the loose structure, the environment to the way I, the way I'm trying to raise my kids. It's like, I want to give you a safe environment and environment in which to fail. I'm not trying to protect you from failure. I'm not trying to protect you from hardship, but what I'm trying to do is put you in an environment where you can fail and fail safely, fail in a way that's not dangerous and catastrophic, fail and undergo discomfort in a way that is healthy. I'm not trying to eliminate failure from your life. Right, but we've tried to eliminate failure because, um, at a system level, because we are afraid of dangers that aren't there. And it gets into this argument of not feeling emotionally safe is much different than actually having your life at stake. That's two different types of safety. I might not feel emotionally safe, right? But I have all my needs met, I have a roof over my head. I have food on the table. There's not someone in the house trying to kill me. Now, we can get into some of the effects of being emotionally unsafe later in another podcast. That's not what I'm getting at here because there are nuances to that conversation we could talk about. I'm not talking about that here. Mm. So... Uh, a little bit further on, um, given that risk and stressors are natural, unavoidable parts of life, parents and teachers should be helping kids develop their innate abilities to grow and learn from such experiences. There's an old saying, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. But these days we seem to be precisely doing the opposite. We're trying to clear away anything that might upset children, not realizing that in doing so, we're repeating the peanut allergy mistake. Um, so again, prepare the child, prepare the vehicle for the road they're going to be traveling on, not smoothing the road out so there's never any bumps and the thing is is like with parents and even as a society we have the right heart we have the right intention right the heart and the intention is not the problem the problem is the way we're going about it is not effective yeah it might seem new it might seem like we got it figured out but it's not being effective we can see that like in society at, at large now however Generations are different, so we have to approach things differently. But this, by and large, of assuming that people and everyone is fragile, that's just wrong. People are naturally resilient. Systems are naturally resilient. Right? It doesn't mean that you just buck up and pretend like there aren't any problems. If you need to heal, heal. But... You know what I mean? There's a difference between getting a little scrape on your arm and going your bit about your business or having a compound fraction in that or a compound fracture in that arm. Right? One is going to be fine within a couple hours. One, yeah, is going to need, you know, to be immobilized and it's going to might need some physical therapy and it has to heal up properly. There's a big difference, but we are treating kids 
like even the slightest little inconvenience, like it's a compound fracture, etc. Ad infinitum. You'll hear that a lot in this podcast. It's one of my favorite phrases. And then they kind of, pardon me, they go um, into the next section. It's a section called the rise of safetyism, and that's where they get into 9-11 and how helicopter parenting becomes a thing and all this jazz. So uh, back to the book, another thing. Um, if you teach students that the intention doesn't matter and you also encourage students to find things more offensive, leading them to experience more negative impacts, and you also tell them that whoever says or does the things they find offensive are aggressors who have committed acts of bigotry against them, then you are probably fostering feelings of victimization, anger, and hopelessness in your students. So the idea here is getting rid of this victim mentality. So they're talking specifically about classes incoming freshmen have to take when they reach university. And it's supposed to be exposing you to a variety of different life experiences. You know, like, you know, like I'm a white male. My experience as a white male is going to be more similar to someone else who's a white male raised in the middle class, right? Um, Because that's where I came out of versus someone who was a black male. Even if a black male was raised in the middle class, his experience is going to be different, right? I'm not talking about having different experiences. However, what is coming out and what they're saying is, right, the heart behind political correctness is right to a degree. We're trying to be polite and respectful to people wherever they, whoever they are, wherever they come from, right? That's the intention. But we've gone so far to the other side of trying to be politically correct that now anything, we can take anything that has the appearance of the contrary. And instead of understanding someone's heart, we don't understand it at all and we just look at how does it affect me so it's this idea of one you you have to respect my intention right but i don't have to respect or regard your intention in your messaging at all you know so it's very hypocritical what is coming out of this so it's crucial to teach students to be thoughtful in their interactions with one another. A portion of what is derided as political correctness is just an effort to promote polite and respectful interactions. Right? But, let's put it this way. Someone who has a different life experience than me, or someone who's just plain old ignorant, says something. They say something in a way that could be slightly not politically correct i have two options right one is that i could try to understand their heart and where they're coming from and understand their background and all these other things to get to the root and the heart of what they're saying right that would be common decency and that would be what we used to do is at at a society level for the most part what we're being taught and what's coming out of the university system in a lot of instances is the thing that that person said, regardless of their heart, regardless of their intention, regardless of their background, because it was quote unquote politically incorrect or because it was quote unquote risque or they, again, they could have meant nothing by it, but it offended you. Right. So then your offense becomes their responsibility. Whereas, as we've been coming up, right, if you were offended at something, that was your problem. It probably meant something that you had to be working through. Now it is, if I'm offended, it's your fault because you said something offensive. And whether you knew it or not, it's because, right, you're a racist or a classist or an ageist, etc. At infinitum, there it is again. And... We're being taught at the university level that this is a type of violence. That words do hurt. And this is actually a type of violence. That person trying to communicate something to you 
well, even well-intended and good-heartedly because you are offended now, you've become a victim to their aggression, even though there was no aggression attached. So they have to understand your intention and where you come from, but you have to, you don't have to meet them on the other side of the street, right? And so this gets into why we're seeing the youth come up with this victim mentality, with this burn it all down mentality, with this you owe me something mentality. Because we played into it because we didn't allow them to undergo those hard experiences when they were younger. And it's getting into even the way language and languaging is happening. But it's just, you know, it's the old Christian concept. Your offense is your problem. Now, if someone is coming at you with the purpose to intent, that is very, 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 very apparent. But we see it with the rise of social media. We see it with even the way the news media preys upon your flight or fight response. Right? I'm going to say something to intentionally trigger you to get you spun out of control. And so now we're always on the defense. We always have to prove ourselves. Whereas like, bro, that dude could have said that thing or that girl could have said that thing because they're just completely ignorant and there was no mal intent behind it. I mean, I have people say things to me every day. If I ran it through the lens of extreme political correctness, could be offensive. But you know what? I look at their heart. I look at what they're actually trying to communicate and I'll let that go. Because if you're that easily offended, really what it is um, communicating is that you're weak. You're mentally weak, you're emotionally weak, and you're living your life as a victim. You, and you actually put yourself under, underneath. Now you're subject to that person's words. Right? You're subject to the word you live under. And because that word allowed you to react such a way, you actually subject and living under the word that that person spoke, and then it's a word that you you supposedly disagree with, right? Think about that. Back to the book, right? So they give some um, recommendations of what they call the untruth of emotional reasoning. So emotional reasoning is among the most common common of all cognitive distortions most people would be happier and more effective if they did less of it so it's the idea of reasoning right understanding is something true or not does something make sense or not and so what has been taught in the university system mind you and we're allowing kids to do is that hey you feel bad in a situation you feel sad in a situation you feel happy in a situation whatever because of your emotion, it makes the situation you're in true or not, you know, right? If I'm, let's just say back, back in the day, right? I, I worked on this ranch one summer out in East Texas. All right. So we, we had to build a fence. We were digging post holes and we were stringing barbed wire. A dude I was working for comes to me. Right. And we hadn't we hadn't been very long on that job. And he's like, hey, these these first two rows of wire you hung on this this side of the property. Those are all wrong. That's not how you hang that wire. Y'all need to go back and redo it. And he was exactly right. I learned later, like, yeah, that's not how you hang wire. And I wasn't paying very good attention to when he showed me how to do it. And I should have asked questions. So did that make me feel good? No. In fact, it ticked me off because, you know, we'd been working for three or four hours at that point. Now we had to pull all those nails out, pull all the wire out, restring it all, redo it. So that was going to be another five or six hours worth of work just to get back to where we were. Okay. But did the fact that I feel bad make what he said any less true or false? No. Emotional reasoning reasoning would say, because I feel bad about what that dude said to me, even though even though I had done the job wrong and the job wasn't correct, because I feel bad about it, that means what that guy is saying to me is not true. That's what emotional reasoning does. And the assertion here is, hey, 
Don't do emotional reasoning because it's not true. If you would just let your emotions pass and then make the decision, right? You would be a lot happier and you would make more sound decisions. You know, a good practice is, is like if, if there's something that's emotionally heavy and you have to make a decision, step away from it if you're able to, then come back to it and make that decision. Um, it's like that line, I got a song called Level Head on the Sidewalk album. You know, you tell them to flee and they'll be gone in an hour. Right? Talking about the devil. All right. In some, in some ways, the devil can use your emotional imprint to talk you into doing things you wouldn't normally do. Or in other words, right, our fight or fight response is activated and we're going to fight this thing and make a decision where we don't need to, or we're going to flee from this thing in a way we don't need to. Okay, that's emotional reasoning. Well, it made me feel good, so I want to keep doing it again. That's what the, the heroin addict says. That's what the food addict that weighs 700 pounds says. Well, eating this food made me feel good. I'm going to keep doing it. Well, it, And then in reality, what's happening on the level of physicality is... Absolutely not working, right? So then, by encouraging students, we're back to the book, by encouraging students to interpret the actions of others in the least generous way possible, schools teach that students about microaggressions, and they may be encouraging students to engage in emotional reasoning at other distortions while setting themselves up for higher levels of distrust and conflict. So this goes back to what I was talking about a little earlier. Right. I take offense at something that might have been well intended. And then because I took offense at it, now I feel bad. And since I feel bad, obviously what that person said to me wasn't true. And now they're an aggressor towards me. Right. That's how the emotional reasoning works. So, right. We're being taught and we're teaching people that everybody is against you. We're teaching kids that everybody is against you. The system's against you. Anything that you could interpret negatively, they're against you. And since you can interpret it negatively, then it is negative, right? All right. Again, this is what we're teaching. This is coming out of schools. And again, they're talking specifically at the university system in this book. But I'll, I'll provide you an example. Have you ever been in traffic and someone cut you off? So the difference in how in how um, we could interpret the least generous way possible, right? You've been cut off in traffic, right? The least generous way possible to interpret it was, oh, that person cut me off because they're entitled and they don't care about people. They're trying to run me off the road. They could have killed me. Hold on. All right, that's the least generous way possible. But I look back to I've cut people off in traffic. Do you want to know 100% of the time why I cut someone off in traffic is? Because I did not see them. So, if I'm the person getting cut off, a more generous approach would be, oh, maybe so-and-so who just cut me off didn't see me. Well, good thing I saw them and we didn't have a wreck. That is a generous way. The least generous way is they're out to get me. They're entitled. They don't care about people. But then think, yo, maybe that person has kids, right? Maybe that person's trying to get home to their kids. Maybe they didn't see you. Maybe that person had a really, really bad day. Maybe that person just got a phone call. One of those phone calls you do not want to hear. Death in the family, whatever. Right, But if we interpret it in the least generous way possible, we're going to see offense wherever we go. All right. So the book goes forward and they get and how the rise of social media has actually has actually increased the amount of social isolation in society. Um, and their contention is with the rise of social media, it's actually girls who are more susceptible to the traps of social media. So this is from a section that says, why is it mostly girls who suffer? Now, it's not exclusive to girls, but why this is more susceptible or why girls are more susceptible with the ins and outs of social media. So 
There are many possible reasons we're back to the book. Um, the first is that social media presents curated versions of lives and many girls may be more adversely affected than boys by the gap between appearance and reality. Many have observed that for girls, more than for boys, social life revolves around inclusion and exclusion. And I could just say in my own anecdotal experience as a dude growing up and as a dude that works with teenagers most of the year, this is true. All right. Social media vastly increases back to the book. Social media vastly increases the frequency with which teenagers see people they know having fun and doing things together, including things which they themselves were not invited while this can increase FOMO, the fear of missing out, which affects both boys and girls, scrolling through hundreds of such photos, girls may be more pained than boys by what Georgetown University linguistics professor Deborah Tannen calls blow, the fear of being left out. When a girl sees images of her friends doing something she was invited to do but couldn't attend, missed out, it produces a different psychological effect than when she is intentionally not invited, left out. So the idea here is um, because we can see more and more people and we're exposed more and more to what people's lives are through social media, this FOMO or faux blow, especially for girls, boys can have it too, not saying that. Um, but because we're exposed to that more, I know what's going on in your life, or maybe I don't really know what's going on in your life, but I know the version of your life that you are putting out there to the public. And I know about that because you'll notice a lot of people aren't posting the good, the bad and the ugly. I'm even guilty of that. And that's why I try to produce these podcasts in a way that's uncut and unfiltered for the most part. So you can get a little bit of like, this is reality going on. But because it's this curated version and we're looking at that so much, it's, it's what your eye gazes upon is what you become or what you believe reality is like. And we might know deep down, we might know that that's not really true. But because it's what we're consciously focused on, specifically for girls in this example, right, this curated version of reality is what we're desiring. And since I'm not in that curated version of reality with my friends, whether I was purposely not invited or whether um, I was not invited on purpose, now I'm seeing that. Now I feel like I'm being excluded, which as social animals feels like shunning, feels like isolation. That's what you do when someone's not part of the tribe, right? We would shun them. So now it's hitting all these deep, psychological and biological triggers back to the book another consequence of social media curation is that girls are bombarded with images of girls and women whose beauty is artificially enhanced making girls ever more insecure about their own appearance it's not just fashion models whose images are altered nowadays Platforms such as Snapchat and Instagram provide filters that girls use to enhance the selfies they pose and edit. So even their friends now seem to be more beautiful. These filters make noses smaller, lips bigger, and skin smoother. And this has led to a new phenomenon. Some young women now want plastic surgery to make themselves look like they do in their enhanced selfies. I mean, we see this all over the place. You see that filter someone took a picture of and you're like, wait. Homegirl doesn't look like that. Homeboy doesn't look like that whatsoever. Yeah, dudes, you use it too. I see it all over the place. Y'all use y'all use the filters too. Don't get me don't get me started on that. You a dude using the filter. Stop it. Just stop it. Stand in who you are. Girls don't buy into that. All right. All right. You use that filter though, and you expect that people are looking more and more unreal, right? We're looking more and more like plastic little Barbie dolls. And that's how we're supposed to look. No, that's not how we're supposed to look like, okay? But then that gives to the rise of body image distortions. Unhealthy body image perception. All of these other things. And then a little more on the social media. Second reason that social media may be harder on girls is that girls and boys are aggressive in different ways, right? I can tell you that just from noticing my own two kids, 
Right, my son loves to play rough. He wants to punch. He wants to kick. He wants to run. He wants to jump. He wants to wrestle. My daughter, well, a little bit here and there, but it's not all the time. Girls are aggressive emotionally more so than boys are. Research psychologist, back to the book, uh, Nikki Crick, shows that boys are more physically aggressive, more likely to shove and hit one another, and they show a greater interest in stories and movies about physical aggression. Girls, in contrast, are more relationally aggressive. They try to hurt their rivals' relationships, reputations, and social status. For example, by using social media to make sure other girls know who is intentionally being left out. So, it's social cruelty for girls, which social media provides that. Oh, hey, I can actually show you and broadcast live 24 hours a day how you are being left out of the group and punish. And then because we're exposed to that, that punishment never ends. Back when I was in school, some of y'all might be saying the same thing back when I was in school, right? Some stuff might have been going down at school or whatever, but you left school that day and you didn't have to see yet. Like you were done with it. You like got a break from all the, the social stuff and all the drama or whatever. Then you went back to school the next day and had to deal with it. But at least you got a reprieve from it. But now with social media and these devices in our pockets, you are exposed to that picture yourself as a teenager you're exposed to that drama you're exposed to what you're being left out of intentionally 24 hours a day right that's one of the dangers so at the end of the book they get in with some recommendations um help schools to oppose the great untruths they have a section about the great untruths uh go back and read that uh if you get the book again i recommend you get the book and start reading through it um but they have a section called the great untruths you can go through those and see what they are emotional reasoning is one of those great untruths but uh they give some recommendations of how to help schools in this scenario so first one homework in the early grades should be minimal. In the early grades, it's always good to encourage kids to read with their parents and on their own, but homework beyond that should not intrude on playtime or family time. Other than encouraging reading, minimize or eliminate all homework in kindergarten and first grade. In later elementary grades, homework should be simple and brief, as Duke University psychologist and homework expert Harris Cooper put it. In elementary school, short and simple homework can reinforce simple skills. Further, short and simple homework can help younger students begin to learn time management, organizational, sk organizational skills, and a sense of responsibility, and can keep parents informed on the child's progress. But for elementary school children, the expectation of big improvements and achievement from long assignments is likely to be unmet. So, little to no homework in the early grades. I'm lucky, I'm lucky that my daughter goes to a school where I see this being met, but I've seen it go the other way, both in my own experience as a student and in other places I've worked as a teacher. The idea is, look, man, you're only young. You're only that age one time in your life. Like, you're not really getting much improvement, and we're not really helping kids improve by throwing a bunch of tasks on them when they're five and six years old and helping them learn them skills. All these studies show that, look, they learn more by going out and playing and having unstructured free time because this is where they learn how to take risk. And then when they're with other kids, they learn how to take risk. They learn how to problem solve and they learn to develop self-confidence, which then again makes them anti-fragile and more resilient. But if we send a five, six-year-old kid home with a stack of homework to do, yeah, like you'll have very, very, very little bit on benefit in them actually retaining the skills, but then the skills that they miss out on. Learning self-confidence, learning how to problem solve, learning how to take risks. They miss out on all of those things, but hey, they might be able to memorize what three plus four is. Another recommendation Give more recess with less supervision. Back to the book here. Recess on school property generally provides an ideal and physically safe setting for free play. Again, we're saying 
We don't want to say, hey, this this be unsafe. So school recess, great idea. It's safe. There's some safety measures in place. Awesome. Right? But we're so worried about monitoring everything at some points that we don't actually let kids do the things they need to do to learn. So back to the book. However, as we've noted, when adults are standing by to resolve disputes or stop children from taking small risks, this may breed moral dependency. To see an example of the positive effects that can come about when kids are entrusted with a much greater autonomy at recess, search the internet for a video titled No Rule School. I'm going to link that in the show notes for you. So um, anyway, um, it's about a New Zealand elementary school principal who gradually removed adult supervision from recess so kids could have risky, unmanaged play. Kids there climb trees, make up their own games, and play with boards, scraps of wards, wood, and junk. Kids get to calculate risk, take chances, and experience real-world consequences. Of course, there are by intention risk here. To implement this policy, much needs to be worked out regarding the physical safety and prevention of bullying. Uh, but point being, right, if there's too much parental supervision or too much, it's not even necessarily intervention that I see. And I get caught on, I had a medically fragile child. I got caught doing this a lot when she was, you know, kind of out of the woods, so to speak, of not intervening when there's a conflict. Something with our two kids now, as they're a little older, me and my wife try to intervene as little as possible when they're having a fight when they're having a conflict with each other so they learn how to solve those problems themselves as long as no one's getting hurt we're trying to stay out of it okay this again builds self-confidence kids learn how to problem solve they learn how to take risk if we have too much supervision i.e helicopter parenting or too much intervention you you steal those opportunities from the kids. And that's what we're doing largely as a society right now. So another recommendation back to the book, discourage the use of the word safer safety for anything other than physical safety. I think it's huge. I think that's huge just in the languaging because we've conflated safety to mean, well, Oh, well, you feel emotionally unsafe. Okay, cool, but there's nothing physically at stake. But then I can feel emotionally unsafe in any environment. If I'm emotionally unsafe, right, that makes everyone else an aggressor and an enemy. And you see how that goes. So they're just saying in the languaging, in the public sector, right, safety should refer only to I don't know if I agree with this or not, but I'm just breaking down this point. Safety should only refer to physical safety. Okay. One of John's friends, that's one of the authors, one of John's friends recently forwarded him an email that the third grade teacher sent to parents about recess and children forming clubs. Kids who played together at recess were not allowing non-members to join in. Reasonable minds... Um, can disagree about the wisdom of compelling kids to be inclusive at recess, but the last line of the email alarmed John. We are thinking about how everyone at recess can feel safe and included. This is the f- need of safetyism. It is painful to feel excluded, and it is good for the teacher to use kids' exclusion as a basis for discussion to help kids reflect on why inclusion is good. But the pain of occasional exclusion does not make kids unsafe. So, Yeah, you want everyone to feel safe and included, using this example from the author's life. You want kids to feel safe and included, and you want to teach them skills to be able to include other people, but there's a he's saying there's a stark difference between you feeling included and you actually being physically safe. Right? Okay, they didn't include me, but I wasn't physically in danger. Right? There wasn't a dude with a holding a gun to my head right there you weren't safe you were perfectly safe you just felt bad because they excluded you there's a big difference there and that's why a couple of other recommendations and i'll wrap this thing up 
Um, have a no devices policy. This is in schools. Some parents will want to give their kids smartphones to track them when they begin traveling to school with an adult or to help with complex logistics of pickup or after school activities. The school policy should be that smartphones must be left in a locker or in some other way to be kept out of reach during the school day. I wholeheartedly agree with that, even with older students. And I think especially with younger students, I mean, why does an eight-year-old need a smartphone? I'm just saying, like, why, why does an eight-year-old need a smartphone? You don't. Communicate. It's, it's that simple. Communicate, get to know your neighbors, do all that other stuff. All right. Um, here are some ideas for middle and high schools. Middle schools and high schools. We're back to the book here. Um, protect or expand middle school recess. I wholeheartedly agree with that as well. In my experience in the schools that I've worked at, middle schools did not even have recess. Okay, In the middle school, the focus becomes more academic. So some middle schools have done away with recess. But the American Academy of Pediatrics notes in a 2013 statement that cognitive, cognitive processing and academic performance depend on regular breaks from concentrated classroom work. This applies equally to adolescents as to younger children. Basically, right, your kids... Um, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, them actually having a, bra a brain break and having an opportunity to physically express themselves, run around, blow off some steam helps them. I would argue it also helps adults. It helps older kids. It helps me. Hence why I, I do my best work when I work for a couple hours in the morning. I go bust a hard workout, recover a little bit, and then come back and sit down. So if it works for me as an adult... You got a kid who doesn't have the coping mechanisms and the skills that I have. Of course, it's going to help a kid. All right. And again, these aren't even these aren't even my opinions. I'm, I'm I'm just reading you research right here. I'm reading you research. Next one: cultivate the intellectual virtues. Another recommendation. Back to the book. The intellectual virtues are the qualities necessary to be a critical thinker and an effective learner. So. You have to include curiosity. This isn't getting into arguments and echo chambers, open-mindedness, and intellectual humility. The process of developing intellectual virtues must begin long before arriving on a university campus. So what they're saying here is at the public school level or the secondary school level, you know, so middle school and high school level, we're so focused on test-taking and checking off the boxes to get into the university that we're not actually producing the types of critical thinking that would allow the child, the student to protect their mind when they step on the campus of the university. And there are these more extreme people teaching these more extreme things. If you're able to think critically, you're just not going to agree with everything that is said. If you develop what they call here the intellectual virtues. Um, another recommendation, teach debate and offer debate club. Um, that's great because I was in debate when I was in high school, but it's great because you have a topic, right? You have a topic of the year depending on what type of, de of debate that you're doing. And then guess what? You don't get to pick which side of the debate you're on when you're in a debate contest, you draw and they tell you you're either affirmative or you're negative. I might disagree with being negative, but I got to argue the negative. So it teaches you nuance between arguments and it teaches you like, hey, like I can skew facts and I can skew data to win my argument, even if I don't agree with it. And then when you watch the news or you, you view whatever type of media you go to, you start seeing and experiencing media through that lens. Oh, they're skewing data and they're skewing their points just to try to get their points across doesn't necessarily make it true or not and doesn't mean I have to agree with it just because it's there. Um, last one. This one is kind of goes without saying. It's not like a um, revolutionary idea, but back to the book, Assign Readings and Coursework that Promote Reasoned Discussion. A school-wide commitment to debate can be supplemented by readings and coursework that teach the habits of good thinking. 
We suggest that schools offer media literacy classes that teach students the difference between evidence and opinion and how to evaluate the legitimacy of sources. Um, And that I can say, at least in my experience, everywhere that I've worked, that is part of the curriculum. So we're doing well according to those recommendations um, at that level. So, but those are things that will help kind of what they're saying. Those are things that will help in regards to students getting to the next phases of their life and not being dissuaded by every little opinion that's promoted their way. Um, again, the book is The Coddling of the American Mind. That's by Jonathan Lukianoff and, or Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. Um, again, look at the link in the show notes if you want more information about that. I could go on and on about this book. Again, um, there's some stuff in it I agree with, some stuff I disagree with, and there's some stuff like I don't really have an opinion on because I sit with it. I'm like, it sounds good, but there are also some things like it could go the other way. And so it's just like I'm in a position where it's like I don't know, right? And it's okay to say I don't know, but I'm letting that information process. And I'm always a deal like, hey, this could be like a really good idea in theory, but if it doesn't work in practice, scrap it, go back to the drawing board. Uh, My intention here was to expose you to some of these ideas so you can sit with it and come to your own opinion and your own conclusion, all right? So do that. Do that with anything that I'm saying, man. Anything. Because that's all that matters at the end of the day. I don't want to tell you how to think. I want you to learn how to think of your own accord and let that truth, excuse me, let that truth and awareness bubble up from inside of you. But the number one thing for anyone listening, you got to know that you're loved, right? You're loved and you're accepted regardless of what reality, regardless of what your circumstances tell you. And that's the truth. But I hope you can feel that. And from that place, let the way you walk and experience the world flow. All right. So until next time, it's Monk. Uh, peace and blessings to you from the Most High. Out.